Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're going to be in Parshat Korach this morning. It is not my favorite Parsha in the Torah, I will admit. I get a little anxious every time we come to this Parsha because it's like serious conflict that's going to result in tragedy and again whenever you know what's coming and it's tragic it's just really hard to get excited about starting it um, oftentimes when we've talked about this part of the partial when we talk about actually the conflict between Korach uh, and Moshe and then um, the challenge by Datan and Aviram a lot of times we talk about what what was so wrong since Korach had a case what makes this so wrong? Why is God so angry? Why is the punishment so devastating? Um, and we talk a lot about what, what are his intentions and how does the Midrash understand his intentions and how he goes about it and blah, blah, blah. I, I'm, I'm not going there this year. This year, I want to stay with the literary aspects of this story, um, partly because Zornberg does such a good job of going there, but so does the Midrash. Um, and really looking at the language of the story and how the story is put together, you know, as a story um, and, and why it's told the way it's told and what that tells us about maybe what the authors are intending uh, in, in bringing it to us as part of the canon. So um, I'm open to anything y'all want to talk about, obviously, um, but that's kind of where I want to lean in a little bit this morning. Okay. So here we are, we're at the beginning of the text, and we're at the beginning of the story. For those of you who are not familiar with this story, there are two challenges to authority happening here. There is Korach, who is talking to Moshe about the fact that Moshe has appointed Aharon as the high priest. And he's upset that Moshe has appointed his brother, the high priest. So that's one challenge. The second challenge is by Datan and Aviram. That is a different challenge to Moshe, and it's directly a challenge to Moshe's authority. So those are, you have to remember, there's two different rebellions going on here, if we want to call them that. All right. Here we go. Vayikach Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kahat ben Levi, vidatan ve'aviram b'nei Eliyav, and blah, 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 blah. So Vayikach, and he took, it's in the singular, Vayikach, and he took, who? Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kehat, that's one, that's Korach ben Levi, he's a Levi. Vidatan ve'aviram b'nei Eliav, and Datan and Aviram, the sons of Eliav, ve'on ben Pelet b'nei Reuven. And On, this guy named On, um, ben Pelet, the son of Pelet, b'nei Reuven, descendants of Reuven. So Datan and Aviram and, uh, and On are descendants of Ruvain. That's what's going on here. We have folks from the tribe of Levi. That's Korach, right? And then Datan, Abiram, and On are from the tribe of Reuven, right? What's interesting to note here already, Vayikach, it's in the singular. Why? We get a whole list of names following that singular verb. <clears throat> what does that verb mean? <clears throat> Vayikach, and he took. Just like in English, he took, you need a direct object. What did he take? So even in English, you would say, and he and took Korach and Datan and Aviram and on their lunchboxes and went to school, right? But Because in English, you, you don't have the singular or plural of the verb to take. So, so and took these people their fire pans or whatever. You need a, an object of what they took. We do not get that here. We get Vayikach, and he took, singular, and then this list of names, and then we should get what he took, but we don't. We start sentence two, verse two, with Vayakumu, and they rose up. Lifnei Moshe, before Moshe, right? Ve'anashim mibnei Yisrael chamishim ma'ataim nisi'ei eda, and 250 leaders. Remember we had the nisi'ei? Um, Ada, we had the Nisi'im, the leaders going to scout the land. Um, these are leaders. So they are people who are um, men of repute, men of name here, right? 
Okay, so these are leaders. These are not some Nebuchadnezzar Yeshiva Buchers that these guys go and like drag behind them or else we're going to beat you up, right? And we can because you're little pasty Yeshiva Buchers. These are leaders of the community that are joining Datan and Aviram. Okay. What do they do? Verse three. So first of all, they rise up. Vayakumu, they rise up. Verse three. Vayikahalu al Moshe al Aharon. So remember the word kahal, kehilat Yisrael. This word kahal is also a verb. They congregationified on Moshe and Aharon, right? They, they came together as a kahal, as a group, al Moshe al Aharon, on Moses and on Aaron. <clears throat> that word al lets us know it's not with good intentions, right? They ganged up essentially on Moshe and on Aharon. And they said to them, this is going to happen. Watch this language. Rav lachem. Rav lachem. Ki kulam kudoshim uvitocham Adonai. Maduatit nasu al-kahal Adonai. So what are they saying? Rav lachem. What's Rav? Rav means abundant. That's why rabbis are called Rav. That's how we, that's the Hebrew term for rabbi. Rav. Why? Abundance. Um, Breadth, meaning of what? Of knowledge, of learning. That's why we're called Rav. So Rav Lechem, um, too much to y'all, too abundant to y'all. Lachem, you plural. So too much to y'all. So I don't like this translation, you've gone too far. Rav, too, too much Lachem to y'all. Because all of the Eda, the entire community, Kedoshim, are holy. And Yodhevavhe is in their midst. So why do y'all lift yourselves up, Al-Kahal Yodhevavhe, over or on the community of Yodhevavhe, right? The congregation of Yodhevavhe. So what is their primary argument? All the people are holy. And so who are y'all to raise yourselves up over the people? Vayishma Moshe, and Moshe heard, or Moshe listened. Vayipol al panav, and he falls on his face. Vaydaber el Korach, and then he speaks to Korach, ve'el kol edato, and to his entire community, Lemor, saying, come morning, we will know who God has made God's own, and what's holy, and, and is allowed to come, and has caused to come close to him, and the one that God has chosen to come close to him. Meaning, who gets to serve? Who gets to have access to the sancta? Who gets proximity to the divine? Right now, it's Aharon. They've challenged that, saying all of the community is holy. And so Moshe falls on his face and then says, yeah, well, we'll see in the morning who, who God allows to be proximate. So look at verse 6. Zot asu korach edato. So korach, all y'all, need to take your fire pans, right? Okay. And tomorrow, tnuvahen esh, put in them fire and offer ktoret, offer incense, lifne adonai, before yudhe Then the person that yudhe vavhe chooses will be the holy one. And what does he answer? He throws their words back at them. Rav lachem, B'nai Levi. You want to talk about who's gone too far? You want to talk about who has too much? You are taking too much, sons of Levi. Vayomer Moshe el Korach, shim'una B'nai Levi. And so Moshe says to Korach, listen up, children of Levi, sons of Levi, meaning descendants of Levi. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel and given you access to God to perform the duties of 
the tabernacle, the Mishkan of Yudhe Vavhe, and to minister to the community and serve them? Now he's advanced you and all of your fellow Levites with you. Do you seek the priesthood too? Verse 11, Lachain. And so really, it is against Yudhe Vavhe that you and your company have banded together. For who is Aharon? that you should talinu alav, that you should, you know, complain about him. Now that's, that's the business with Korach, right? There we go. That, that's, that's what goes on with Korach and the Leviim. Now we go to 12. Now we go to, and Moshe sends for Datan and Aviram, these descendants of Eliav, and says, and, and like, basically, he sends for them. He, he sends for them to be brought so that he can he can meet them. He wants to have a conversation with them because he knows that they are in open rebellion with 250 leaders, other leaders. This is a big deal. When 250 leaders of the people are joining, right, against Moshe, this is a very big problem. This is a leadership crisis moment. He's got Korach on the one hand, and he's got 250 plus these dudes, just 253, whatever, on this side. He's got a problem, a major problem. And I think we underestimate that because we know how it ends, right? But right now, Moshe has a very, very serious crisis on his hands. So he sends for the leaders. He sends for Datan and Aviram. And what do they say? Lo na'aleh. We will not come up. Aleh, like from Aliyah, to go up. Lona Aleh, we will not come up. Is it not enough that you brought us? He'elitanu, look at that word, the third word. He'elitanu, is it not enough that you brought us up? From a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness? that you would also then lord it over us. All right, so listen to the language they're using. You brought us up from a land flowing with milk and honey. What is that land that they're referring to? Uh, that would be Egypt, people. What does Moshe keep saying his mission is? To bring them up to a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Because Egypt is down, remember? Egypt is always down because it's south, of Israel, but it's also down, right? Um, it's down there. And so, um, so they're purposefully using language that turns that on its head. You brought us up from a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, and now you're going to, for us to die in this desert, and now you're going to lord it over us. Even if you brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey and given us possession of fields and vineyards, should you gouge out those men's eyes? Lo na'ale, we will not come up. Vayichar l'moshe me'od. So Moses was, this says, aggrieved. Uh-uh, vayichar, he was pissed. He was mad. Vayichar l'moshe me'od, he got very, very angry. Vayomer el right? And says to God, pay no regard like to what they're going to offer you. I've, or, or, I mean, to their complaint, I've not taken the ass of any one of them, meaning I've not taken even a donkey from any one of them, nor have I wronged any one of them. Moshe's answer to their charge is he hasn't taken one donkey from them. Notice, they did not accuse him of stealing. They did not accuse Moshe of having taken anything, right? They, they, that's not what they said. That, that's not what they're complaining about. All right, so let's go to 16. Vayomer Moshe el Korach, we're now back at Korach. So this text switches back and forth between the two rebellions, and it doesn't make it very clear, and it's all a mishmash, which I believe, and um, I believe, based on commentators a lot smarter than me, um, I am convinced by them that this is, this is like we've seen with Sinai and other things that, like the wrestling of Jacob, when the text gets all tangled like this, the editors know it's not reading smoothly. 
the editors know that it's reading really rough. They're not stupid. So they, they leave it like this for a reason. And so I, I really buy the critics version that it's literally so tangled and jumping back and forth and who knows which, because it's all one big mess. It may be different challenges from different parts of the constituency of the people of Israel, but it is all this huge political morass that Moshe's found himself in. And so it doesn't really matter that these have this complaint and this has that complaint. I mean, yes, it matters because he's got to deal with it, but it's, it's that sense of just an overwhelming threat to Moshe's leadership and to his authority and to, by virtue of that, to Aharon's uh, authority. So where are we? So Moshe is turning back to Korach and saying, tomorrow you and all of your company appear before you at Hey, you and they and Aharon. And each of you take your fire pan and lay incense on it. And each of you bring the fire pan before you at Hey, 250 fire pans. You and Aharon also bring fire pans. All right. So do we remember what happened with fire pans and incense that God didn't ask for? Do we remember what happened with, with Aaron's that? sons that uh-huh. smote them? Uh-huh. So Aaron's sons, right, who brought offerings on fire pans, incense offerings in particular, that they weren't warranted by God, they weren't asked for or made kosher by God. What happened? They, right, they got, they burned up. So think about it. Moshe, Moshe witnessed those smoking bodies, remember? He and, he and Aharon had to deal with that. And so now Moshe says, you know what, you little troublemakers, you know what? You want to threaten me? You want to threaten what God wants? Fine. Go get a fire pan. Mr. So excited to be serving. You want to serve? Okay, go get your fire pans. So, like, this is not... It's not just a test. Moshe has seen a test run of people taking fire pans and laying incense on them who aren't supposed to be doing that at that moment. And these are Levi'im, right? These are Levi'im who are claiming they want some more power and are, and are challenging Aharon's priesthood, okay? So you want to challenge a priesthood? You go right ahead. You get your fire pans, Mr. Busy. Vayakhel alehem korach. Because that's where it happened to Aaron's sons, remember? They were Petach Ohel Moed at the opening of the Tent of Meeting. So Korach gathered the community against them at the entrance of the Tent of Meeting. And just as things are about to maybe get truly ugly, the community's coming after Moshe at the Tent of Meeting. What happens? The Kavod, the glory, the presence, the concentrated presence of God appears to the entire Edah. And God speaks to Moshe and Aharon and says, stand back from this community that I can. It doesn't mean annihilate them. What does achale mean? Natasha, ochel. I don't know. Food, eat, right? Stand back from them. I'm going to eat them. I'm going to devour them. You want to be close to me? And you're going to challenge, right, what I have said to Moshe and what I've told him to do? You want to challenge that and be close to me? Come here, (laughs) right? Moshe, get away from them because no problem. You want to be close? I will consume you. And they fell on their faces, right? And they said, oh God, source of the breath of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be wrathful with the whole community? Who fell on their faces? Moshe and Aharon. So Moshe and Aharon fall on their faces, possibly because they're about to get stoned, right? They're about to get attacked, so the only thing to do is show your, your vulnerability um, you're, that you're not going to challenge. Um, possibly the, the Midrash says they're praying. Whatever it is, they fall on their faces. Then they turn to God and said, source of the breath of all flesh, when one person sins, will you be wrathful with the whole community? Meaning don't consume everything around here. 
because of these few people. And God says to Moshe, speak to the community and say, withdraw from the abodes of Korach, Datan, and Aviram. Now they're put together. God puts them together. Get away from all of them. So Moshe goes to Datan and Abiram, the elders of Israel, Zikne Israel here, the elders of Israel following him. He addressed them and said, move away from the tents of these wicked people and touch nothing that belongs to them. It's all in Cherem, lest you be wiped out for their sins. So they all withdraw from the abodes of Korach, Datan and Abiram. Datan and Aviram come out and they stand at the entrance of their tents with their wives and their children and their little ones. And Moshe says, by this will you know that it was God who sent me to do all these things. They are not of my own devising. If these people die like all do, if their lot be the common fate of all person kind, it was not Yodhe who sent me. But if God brings about something unheard of so that the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, you shall know that these people have spurned Yodhei He had scarcely finished speaking all these words when the ground under them burst asunder and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, all Korach's people and all of their possessions. They went down alive into Sheol with all that belonged to them. The earth closed over them and they vanished from the midst of the congregation. All Israel around them fled at their shrieks for they said the earth might swallow us. What happens right after that? And a fire went forth from Yodhei right? Which we saw happen before and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Okay. So do I have initial reactions? I saw somebody had a hand up that wanted to ask something. We're not going to talk about shale, people. We're not talking about it. You know, there's, it's just so current with what's going on. This is just revolution, revolution, revolution. And it's just so current. I mean, we've got uh, Korach revolting against M- Moses. And then we've got Moses telling God what to do. Pay no attention to them. I mean, I'm like, what? What? And then telling it. I mean, there is, it is just speaking to me, nothing but revolution, which is, all that's going on right now. I mean, this is Black Lives Matter. Um, And I think it is the question, it begs the question to me, must power corrupt people? I mean, I don't know. It's just to me, that's my question uh, to go inside. But um, it was just so much revolution is all I have. So first of all, who's corrupted by power here? Who has power that's Corrupted. This is Moshe corrupted that he's now telling God what to do. Pay no attention to that. Okay, now, but let's so let's ask the question: Is Moshe corrupt? I, 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 well, you know, to me, to be able to start telling God what to do, he's a little full of himself, a little Trump esque. <laughs> so God has told Moshe to appoint Aharon. Yes. Then they. Then they come at him saying, Rav Lechem, who are you? You're taking too much. So Moshe, in Moshe's mind, is doing what God asked. It's not Moshe who's taking power or giving it to Aaron. In, In his world, right, in his reality, he's doing what God wants. So in his mind, who are they challenging? Not him. They're challenging God. They're challenging God. And Moshe's the righteous warrior for God. I mean, in this in this reading, right, that he's saying, y- y'all are the ones making the problem. Right? I'm doing what God wants. Right. And so, so Dana right now is saying it's about the intention of the leader, that Moshe's not self-serving here. He's saying, I'm trying to fulfill what the divine has told me to do. Right? So, so I'm not sure that Moshe's corrupt I think his intentions are to follow what God wants. But to your point, he has an incredible amount of chutzpah yeah. in that he, not only does he tell God, hang on, right? Don't go, don't, don't do this. But Moshe also says how God is supposed to punish these people. Yeah. Moshe says, bring fire pans. Well, what is God supposed to do with that? It's right. very clear that Moshe means bring your fire pans and God will burn up the ones yeah. 
who are who lose. So he tells God how to punish them, and then says to Dat, to Datan and Aviram and that whole crew, you know, if these people die a normal death, then you'll know it wasn't God who sent me. But if the earth sw- opens up and swallows them in some kind of totally bizarre, unusual way, meaning God now has to do that. To prove that Moshe is God's agent, right? So Moshe has no problem telling God how this needs to go, right? So certainly chutzpah. Now we have to ask on some level, is it holy chutzpah? And what differentiates holy chutzpah from unholy chutzpah? And in this case, the the revolution, the rebellion if you're going to liken it to what's happening in the streets, and I knew, I knew people were going to go there because, of course, that's where I went right away. Um, if you're going to liken it to that, you have to then ask, so who are the people with good intentions around revolution and who are the ones looting for their own benefit and using this opportunity to take something that doesn't belong to them? And yeah. this is the question that gets overlaid on both of these rebellions. Is it a true protest, right? A true revolution that needs to happen or is it self-serving, right? And th- that's the big argument in the Midrash because the punishment would seem to suggest it is out of line. Both of them are destroyed. All of them are consumed and destroyed. So, the, the argument from the text is it was not a legit rebellion, but Korach is Moshe's first cousin. So he has a claim to be in the running for the priesthood. Why is it such an ill intent? Where's our proof that that's an ill-intentioned challenge, right? To say, Rav Lachem, your family is taking too much right? Control, authority, power, proximity to the divine, whatever you want to fill in there. They're taking too much. Where's our proof? Where's our evidence that that is ill-intentioned and not a true desire to be in the running for those considered to be the ones most proximate to the divine? Mehmet, you want to speak? I think in the, in, in, in the history of the Israelites, we, we, um, now we have a political elite and it's a religious elite. It's almost like aristocracy. It's, and it's the first protest rebellion against that. Uh, unlike other tribes or people in the Near East, uh, like the Egyptians or the Sumerians and all these others, uh, larger nations, now um, the Jews are becoming, the Israelites are becoming a bigger nation. And they are on the path of facing the diseases of larger nations. That's how I see it. So, so you think this is a stage of development? Yes, international reach that that is going to mean, by definition, messy, <laughs> messy stuff like this. Well, not not necessarily messy, but you have to deal with these things first because before you you know become a nation, and even if you become a larger nation, you still deal with these things. You know, we 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 still have leaders in the Middle East. Uh, that speak in the name of God, uh, claiming they do everything in the name of God, but the people are not happy with it. And so in that sense, Moshe is not a model we want. Not necessarily Moshe. Even in contemporary examples, sometimes we say, well, th- that leader of ours is, is totally fine. He's, he's, he's ethical, but his entourage is corrupt. Right. Um. And so, like, so th- this makes us question this story. Then, what what is so problematic? Well, I think this story is very, very symbolic of. Uh, 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 well, I believe the chronicles had a lot more examples of these um, rebellions and protests such as these, and and I but perhaps they were just um, 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 collated into one larger story like this. And it symbolizes um, uh, many of these before they uh, settle in the Holy Land. They must have had other issues among themselves in these 40 years. I would think. Right? I would think. I have a question. Why 250? What's the, in terms of numerology, what does that 
stand for? I'm not sure. I think it's a number that you could pick that would suggest massive rebellion, okay. Okay. right? If you have 250 leaders of the people, like it's it lost. seems to suggest this is not just a riffraff or a little, you know, challenge. This this is a major coup attempt, right? Mm. That that the Korach has a lot of support, um, and I also want to situate this this moment for us. And that the, this is the one of the lowest moments ever, right? The, the people have just been told, you are going to die in this desert. Moshe has been told, you will not be taking these people next Thursday, as was the plan, into the promised land. You, Moshe, are going to have to spend 40 more years wandering in the desert, Right? And so M- Moshe has learned essentially the central project that he spent, risked everything for, confronting Pharaoh, dealing with his own fears, dealing with his own sense of inadequacy about speaking. Notice, remember? So Aviva Zornberg goes to the fact that Moshe's always had an issue with speech. Moshe's always had an obsession with his inability to convince other people through speech, to be part of the project. That's always been an issue for Moshe. And so now, too, right, he can't speak to them. He can't communicate with them. They won't come up. Lo na'aleh, we won't come up to talk with you. So this is an incredibly low moment for Moshe. He's been told his whole project, he overcame all of that. He spoke He became the prophet. He became the leader. And his project has failed. This generation is not going into the promised land. He did it all to bring them from slavery to freedom, and it's not going to happen. And the people have been told, right, you're going to die in this desert. That's the moment we're at right now. When it gets so low and hopes are so low, which I think is also another thing that's happening in our streets, right? When the situation gets so low and you've got nothing to lose, right? That's that's where you go. Okay, Natasha? Well, what I was going to say is, um, you know, I I don't think it's as much like this, like, spiritual pride from, from Moshe, as much as like he's trying to be the messenger, right? Or like he, if, like when it just reminds me of when he was trying to show God's miracles to to Pharaoh to prove like this is the real God, right? And then he like didn't was Moses was the one that was like you know God will do this, and then God did it to to like back Moses up, right? And so I kind of think like that's sort of what's happening here where he's like it's not like he's telling god what to do but he's like acting as the messenger or the go-between as like the human in between and then it's and then i you know it's like the you can't just have faith in god when things are good right but like even though things are looking like crap (laughs) like that it's just that it's not that these that the israelites are not trusting the plan and so um i think it's that lack of faith in like the plan even though it doesn't look great it looks terrible right now that 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 is the like that 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 is how i that is how i see what is happening that it's like less i don't know that that, 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 that's where i'm at that's where i'm thinking about it and that's moshe's job right is to be in between and and it's always been the source of agony for him. It's always been a really difficult thing for Moshe to, to be the emissary of Yudhei Vavhei, right? It's, it's not something he's comfortable with on a good day, right? But now he's mad. Now Moshe's mad. And when Moshe or God get angry, terrible, terrible things happen. And the damage goes way further right, than sitting in a courtroom and saying, okay, this one deserves this and that one deserves that. Catastrophe happens. And they're, everyone's consumed. Everyone near them is consumed. Carol's troubled by that. That's what happens. That's what happens. 
You start this kind of a mess and innocent people are hurt. It's how well, it goes. It's like they're expecting like a, like a butler God, right? Like I want this, bring it to me. I want this, bring it to me. Where it's like, that's not like, that's not what God has demonstrated himself as. Like maybe he, he got them out of a bad situation, but then it, it, it's a relationship. Like it takes faith on both on both sides and the Israelites have done nothing to prove that they're trustworthy of like carrying out, you know, what Moses and what God has asked them to do. Okay. Carol. Why kill the children? See, I knew she was going there. So (laughs) because that's what happens. Yeah. When you start a mess like this, it's going to spread further than what you intended. You have to think about consequences. If the ground opens up, Moshe set the terms. If the ground is going to open up and all everybody's hanging out with these guys who are challenging them, the ground opens up. Everybody goes down. We know this. We know this. If you allow it to devolve too badly, everybody goes down. Everybody. Not just the people you intended. Right? If it gets too out of control, everybody loses. Everybody goes down. Is it possible this is two stories intermixed? Oh, of course it's two stories intermixed. Of course. It's Datan and Abiram and their challenge with the 250. And then it's a different challenge by Korach and and other Levi'im to the authority of Aharon. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. which is which is one reason why it, it it's so hard to follow. Yes, but the editors could have made it easier to follow. Yeah. <laughs> the editors could have said, then Moshe stopped there, got a hamburger, <laughs> right? Did the treadmill, and then went to talk to Datan and Abiram. Right? The the editor could have made it. Seamless. I think the reason the editor doesn't is because it's like Moshe has all of this stuff happening at the same time. And it's completely discombobulating and completely overwhelming, right? That it's not just a pandemic he's dealing with as a leader. It's also rioting in the streets, right? Like he's got everything at once coming at him. Robert has a question. So does George. Okay, George. God has turned out to uh, totally ignore collateral damage and in terms uses it all the time. Used it uh, in Egypt with uh, killing innocent uh, Egyptians, if you will. Uh, in Noah's Ark, he killed the entire population. And here again, he's killing collateral damage just makes no difference. And this is one stereotype of the Jewish God is that he is evil and kills people. I, I, I don't know what that last part means, but uh, the, the ignoring of collateral damage is just crucial in this. So remember, remember the people writing these stories. This is not a story written by God, defending God's actions. These are stories written by people. This is how they understand how the world works. Okay. And so how what, are we, what, are, what are we learning from these people who wrote these stories? They believe if you push it too far, the only consequence is that innocent people suffer. There will always be collateral damage, people. You want to take care of weapons of mass destruction? WMD? We have a righteous cause. We're going to fight somebody who's going to destroy the whole world. So we go in and what happens? We bomb women and children, but that's okay. Are we evil? No, of course not. We had good intentions. We're going to wipe out the dictator and wipe out his entourage and wipe out anybody who's in control of those weapons. Well, guess what people, when you have to, when things get to a certain level, there is always collateral damage this story is written by people who saw that all the time that there is always massive collateral damage they don't understand the world working any other way whether it's a righteous cause or an unrighteous cause there is always when it gets bad enough and messy enough there's always collateral damage okay so this is robert then david robert Okay, well, you, you covered point one. You just covered point one. 
<laughs> which is that the, the world these people were living in was a, a world filled with war yes. and the results of war. Uh, and as even modern people, uh, modern warriors will say, there is terrible collateral damage, unavoidable. But anyhow, there were two places I wanted to go <clears throat> with this, this story. One relates to power, lack or lack thereof, and the other trust. Uh, Natasha um, brought up the issue of trust. Uh, <clears throat> Moses has no real power to deal with this rebellion. He, can't, he doesn't have an army. He doesn't have a Praetorian guard. He doesn't have a secret service or anything of these guys. Uh, he has no power. The only place. So this is to me, I use the word bar. He's borrowing power from the only place he can go, which is God. Israel. He, he's got nowhere else to go to get the power to deal with this. <clears throat> so that's sort of how I read the situation he's in. But what is the the message to me has to do with the fact that that the people have lost trust in him, their leader. And boy, does that speak to the situation we got in America and a lot of places in the world today. But I would suggest the only difference is Moshe hasn't given them any reason to doubt him. That's what he says when he says, I haven't taken even one donkey. Right? Like, I've given them no reason. No, I understand. But the the reason for God, let's say, I mean, the as you say, God didn't write this, people wrote this. But the reason, in my mind, is that if the, when the chieftains have, 250 of them, have lost, do not trust their appointed supposed leader, which, then there's a terrible problem. Correct. And we have a terrible problem with okay. lack of trust. But here's where I want to say I want to pull those things apart. Okay. Because I think you're right. It causes a terrible problem of morale and then a terrible possibility for collateral damage around what that is going to result in. The difference here, I think, is they are unable to take any responsibility for the fact that they were supposed to go up. They were supposed to go. The whole enterprise is coming apart and they are unable to take any responsibility for that. It's not Moshe's fault. It is Donald Trump's fault. That's the difference here. Okay. The, that, you know what I'm saying? Like, it is Trump's fault. That is an incredible failure on every level of leadership and a betrayal. Sorry, I'm getting activated. A betrayal of the people's best interest. That is not Moshe. Well, that's true, but but... It's really, as you said, this is sort of the bottom. I mean, this is really a bad time. But it is really always a bad time when you have people who do not trust their government, their leaders, or whatever. It's gonna it's gonna lead to So the a question really becomes when is it because the leader has for in some way given them cause to right to, to lose trust? And when is it that people are just pissed off and things suck? And when things suck, what do people do? Oppressed people, marginalized people, disempowered people. When things really suck for them, guess what they do? They turn on their leaders. Right. Right? So marginalized communities eat up their leaders who don't deserve it. Right, but they have nowhere else to put the animus that they have, nowhere else to put the rage, nowhere else to put it, but on leaders, and they eat up their leaders. Well, as you say, sometimes they deserve it, and sometimes they don't. But but in the social science literature, it talks about the, the forget the leader. The leader doesn't have to do anything, right? But the leader gets turned on when the people have nowhere else to put it, right? And I think that's what we're seeing here. This is an oppressed people. They're at the very bottom of their experience. They've just been told everything's been taken away from them. All hope, all possibility of something going differently. Of course, they won't take any responsibility for that. Instead, they lash out um, at the leadership, right? And that feels different from me than leaders who have lost the trust and faith of the people because of what they've done or how they've behaved or, or haven't behaved. Or at least that's, that seems to be how the rabbis approach this in order to defend, um, to defend the fact that right, God takes 
Moshe's side. All right, Judith, I understand, has a question. A rabbi told a story when I was in a congregation in Dallas, uh, Robert might know this rabbi, about a Texan who was the bombardier on one of the, the, the planes that bombed Nagasaki. And when he came back from the war, he started to rob banks. He would call the police after he robbed a bank and they would say, what have you done? He said, I've robbed a bank. Why did you do that? I have to be punished, he said. This was kind of the opposite of blaming somebody. It's taking the responsibility for having done something that was really terrible and wanting to be punished for it and not being punished. I look at the collateral damage in the stories you're telling, and the people who have operated to make that collateral damage also pay a huge price for the suffering that has happened. I wonder in this case where God caused the collateral damage, if that reflects itself in any further stories. Like, I'm sorry I, I did that. I, What did I do wrong? Uh, who, who's saying that? Who, I, well, no, I'm just wondering because the the person who dropped the bombs, who pulled the lever to drop the right. bomb, Felt guilty about had, to, had to be punished for what he had done. He felt so guilty for what he had done and caused all the collateral damage that he came back and tried to punish himself. Uh, and I think when, when collateral damage, like the, we see the pictures now from Vietnam of the little girl running down the street who's been burned so badly, she has become a symbol for what we did in Vietnam for how terrible we were in Vietnam. Do we see any of that in this story? No. No. We we don't see that these stories are written by people who have a fantasy. This doesn't right. happen. This doesn't happen that God comes down and burns up the people who with with bad intentions. It doesn't happen. It's a fantasy. That you come and you destroy everything that right is questioning the right way. And that's the other thing, George. It's a fantasy. Don't we all wish the fire pans of certain people of a certain political party in our country right now would just ignite? Yes. <laughs> right? Am I proud of that fantasy? No. no. But do I have it? Yes. Right, you won't speak up, you won't tell the truth, you won't call it out. I just hope that fire pan explodes. There's a fantasy element of wanting righteousness and justice to get its just desserts. And who cares who's sitting next to them? But I don't the truth care. is it doesn't happen. Quite often it doesn't happen. Right. So all right, so so it's both the reality, like Robert was saying, of what they're living with, constant war, constant collateral damage. That's, the, that's just the world. But also, I believe there's a fantasy element here. The, the, the righteous source of power in the world would come just zap the people who are trying to wreck the project out of their own sense of disappointment, disillusionment, right? You know, whatever it is they're coming out of to try to wreck the whole project, that they be taken out. David? Um, Amy, I've always been troubled when the IDF goes in and destroys the home and the family of terrorists. I've been troubled that one isn't really right to do that. I'm also troubled because no one seems in from Israel seems to protest. Is this possibly a halakhic justification for collateral damage for killing the innocent because no. a family member no a terrorist? Or no. This is the, first of all, no halacha derives from here. Ah. No Jewish law derives from here. And the IDF has its own, you know, conversations about the morals and ethics of how to handle collateral damage. And in their moral and ethical evaluating of whether or not to do something like that, they come down on the side of the greater evil. And for them, 
Yes, it's terrible to destroy the home and the whatever of terrorists. They don't destroy their families, by the way. They don't kill their families unless they're dropping a bomb on the terrorists. If you take an old uh, home of several hundred years of a family and just destroy it and they're homeless, that's serious stuff. I mean, it's serious it's- stuff. So, so they have to. So, in their in their dealing with that, they weigh the moral evils involved. Destroying the homes, and that means the lives, possibly of the right. women and children associated right. with the terrorists, right. and right. or the weighing the loss of innocent lives that the terrorist is going to cause. So they have to weigh those two things. And I'm not saying we have to agree or disagree. It's not our decision and we don't live there. But right, we, they have to make that decision. And we do it as America all the time. We weigh the decision. Are we ready to go in to wherever it is, Afghanistan or anywhere else, and bomb innocent civilians? Because we weigh that against what the terrorist and that network will accomplish in terms of murdering innocent lives. We do it the same way Israel does it. We have to weigh that. And when people decide to go in and cause that collateral damage, they're saying the greater evil is to not do that. And then the terrorist and the terrorist organization is going to take out more innocent lives than these. I'm not agreeing with that or disagreeing with that. I'm saying that's the moral reasoning, and it's the same used by the IDF. Yeah, do you think I'll it's accepted in Israel widely that that is a proper approach? It, no, there's a there's a huge argument in Israel, just yeah. like there is here, about about whether or not that's right, when it's right, when it's not. I mean, there's a huge argument. There's a huge organization of people who lie down in front of Palestinian homes to say you won't destroy this home. Okay. Right. And or this olive grove or yep. whatever. And then they're arrested. And it's just like here. It's like they're you know, there's ways of protesting that. I, I, I think there are two examples, uh, many examples in World War Two, but the bombing of Hiroshima. Right. I mean, that was that was a big decision. And it was made based on the fact that if we didn't get Japan to surrender, a million people would be killed in an invasion. Uh, the other thing I want to come at this from another direction and that is that what we do affects the people around us. What parents do affect their children. And that I think part of the lesson here is that we need to be careful about what we do because it doesn't just affect us, it affects other, other people. The ills, we ignore the, in our, the ills we ignore in our society has real consequences. Or even more directly within family, you know. Sure. Uh, violence in the family, even if it's not directed at the children, just take between husband and wife, the children suffer from that. And sometimes for generations, there are, there, there are family dynamics that exist for generations that suffer. It's very interesting. I think, I forget where it, uh, where it is in the Torah, but there's a thing that the it always bothered me that the punishment will go to the children for two or three generations for something bad, but for something good, the good will go for a thousand generations. Right. I mean, so we could just say consequences, right? Like, yeah, that's, that's what I meant. Consequences. Right. The consequences. So, right. so all of us, when we act, I mean, with children or as you were talking with society, the effect is not just on us. And yes, innocent people do uh, suffer and sometimes the people who are causing that suffering are the people who are creating the environment that makes, you know, that brings it on. Right. Okay. So, um, so David brought up um, the issue of like, what are the rabbis, you know, what, what, is there halacha that comes from here? Like what, what is this used to defend or not defend? And um, so, so even though there isn't necessarily halacha that comes from here, there's certainly guidance that the rabbis take from this parsha. So, so let's look at what just a few of the things. This is from a, a sheet, a source sheet that I put together with the Hebrew and English that was literally cut and paste from the book. Um, so I, I just copied the English for you from that because uh, I can't give you the handout. So now to Korach, Vayikach Korach. What what did he take? And of course, there's no word about what he took. He took himself. 
says the tradition, right? He had many good things going for him. He had positive attributes that were, that he was, he came from a good lineage, same as Moshe. He was wise. He was wealthy. Indeed, he might've been worthy of being a leader of the Jewish people. Why then was he not given that position? It's because now took Korach, he took himself. He did not wait until he was offered the leadership, but sought to take it by force. That was why he was not worthy of it, right? So the rabbis do draw things about what should and shouldn't be um, done based on this parsha. Um, now took Korach. Um, this parsha is interpreted nicely, says Rashi. And what do the rabbis say about that? One can explain Rashi's statement homiletically. We know that rabbis will generally choose a verse or verses from the current week's parsha as the source of their sermons. What Rashi meant is the parsha of Korach can be used nicely at any time. Why? Because there are always disputes among Jews. Okay. And when Moshe heard it, he fell on his face. When Moshe heard it, he fell upon his face and he spoke unto Korach and all his company saying, tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. The reason is that he feared that Korach was but acting as God's emissary. He therefore fell on his face to examine whether the accusations against him had any basis. That's why he he falls to the ground, to take a minute to do some self-examining. After examining his own actions minutely, Moses decided that he did not have the slightest conceit. He then realized that Korach was not serving as God's emissary and was simply arguing for the sake of argument. It was then that he answered as he did. Um, so, so one needs to take criticism seriously and be humble enough to actually do some self-examination, an accounting of the soul to see if any of it's true before one responds. That's the model of leadership that the rabbis take from this. What is the other example? This is against Moses. And Moses sent to call Datan Aviram, the sons of Eliab, who said, we will not come up. Moshe sent to them, that, quoting the text, why didn't Moshe manage to bring peace among the Israelites? It is because he did not bother going to them to try to appease them, but waited in his tent and sent to have them brought to him. Right? So the rabbis have actually a lot of things that they take from this Parsha um, in terms of how it is we're supposed to behave. And the other, the other thing that Zornberg points to is that Moshe as a leader is attempting dialogue. So this is the man who had problems speaking or problems having people respond to him. That's being heard. That, that's, his, that's his big thing. And she goes all the way back to, it's very interesting. She goes back all the way to him being adopted by the princess who cannot nurse him. So the person who's not identified as his mother, but as his wet nurse, that's the breast from which Moshe suckles. So he's got a complicated relationship to the mouth from the beginning is, what, is where uh, Zornberg goes. Very interesting. So he, his mouth is an issue from the beginning. It's all confusing and a mess from the beginning. Um, but he's attempting dialogue. He attempts to talk to Korach. And he attempts to talk to Datan and Abiram. He, he, even with them rebelling against him, Moshe keeps trying to talk to them, to have some kind of communication until it's obvious that they will not engage in the relationship of dialogue. Datan and Abiram won't even show up. And Korach, right, won't dialogue with Moshe. And, and, so, so Zornberg explores, like, what does it mean? Why won't Korach or Datan and Abiram talk to Moshe? Why won't they engage in any kind of conversation about this? He's ready to dialogue. The leader's ready to sit down with you. Why won't they engage? And she goes into a very interesting explanation of, um, of the Korach, what she calls the Korach syndrome. And like the, the, the problem with Korach is that he won't dialogue. The problem with Korach is the problem with every leader who might have a righteous cause, but is so about the righteousness that there's no room to actually fix the problem, which is an interesting take, right? It, Korach wasn't wrong. His project wasn't wrong, but he wasn't willing to leave enough open space to have dialogue affect the outcome. Only his understanding of what was right was going to do it. And that is another problem that we see with leadership is that 
the, the deserving leader who has a good argument, who has a good case, who has a good cause, but is so caught up in being right about their cause that they cannot affect real change, right? Because they're not willing to dialogue with the powers that be to maybe have an, incre- incre- an incremental step towards it being better, right? It's no, it all has to change now. This is what has to be. This is the reality that has to exist. And that's the righteous cause. And if you can't do that, I'm not talking to you. That doesn't get us anywhere. So, so Zornberg and some of the rabbis go to the fact that Korach had a point, but that he's so consumed with his position and his point and the outcome being what he wants, that he completely obliterates any possibility for change to actually happen and winds up doing a lot more damage um, than had he been willing to engage. Um, and she, she quotes the philosopher Jacques Maritain, who speaks of some abiding despair in every great poet, a certain wound in him that has set free the creativeness. Korach, averse to gaps, wounds, spaces, cannot struggle with his limitations. By the same measure, he cannot access his subjective creativeness. And this is based on a commentary by the medieval commentator Meha Shiloach, that dialogue actually means I have to be ready to face some gaps in my own understanding, in my own knowledge, in my own way of seeing this. If I'm not willing right, to, to own that, that there might be some gaps in my understanding and that I might change in response to dialogue because I don't have all the answers, that is a certain kind of hubris that results in damage, that, that results in destruction. It, even well-intentioned, even with the right argument, even with the facts and the philosophy on your side, if you're not ready to dialogue and own those gaps, there's no room for creative response. The creativity of the poet is based on their wounds, based on facing the gaps, the missing spaces. And the Korach and many leaders who even have a good cause wind up causing so much damage because they're not ready to face, with humility like Moshe, the... Um, the gaps and the places I don't know, or the places that even though I want it this way, what's going to work best for everybody is to compromise and at least start the process to get us closer to what I believe ultimately needs to be. And, um, and so I think this is a moment in our history where we're being called to try to do that, to try to create the kinds of dialogue, the kinds of conversations where creativity in response to the very real injustices that we're seeing, that there's some creativity about how to hold this moment and, and getting at solutions and getting at incremental change that we can affect right now, some that we can affect right now, but some that are just baby steps towards what we know uh, ultimately has to be. And that if people are not ready to dialogue, then I'm worried for what that means, right? For, for there being like no, no room um, to, to have some creative stuff. Um, David Russo, good luck with Congress, right? This is, this is exactly right. So we have leaders on both sides who are so dug in and unable to communicate and unable to say where might be the gap in my own understanding, my own way of seeing it, my own arguments. So where am I ready to hold the gap and the wounds and the whatever so that there can be creativity around how we solve these problems? That's exactly what we're seeing. I think what she's talking about is exactly what we're seeing in Congress. And it's what we're seeing. It's we're, we're seeing it all over the place. And, and it, it, she's right to say that that is a really scary situation because then even with a right cause and a right, you know, fighting for the right thing, you destroy everything. Right. And that's what, and I feel like we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that, the results of that. So, you know, this Shabbat, as we go into Korach, may we, may we exhibit holy chutzpah, May we absolutely work passionately on behalf of what we believe are the changes that need to happen. And may we do that with an appropriate amount of humility, 
um, to understand that we don't have all the answers. We don't see the whole picture. We don't have all the facts. We can't put ourselves completely in someone else's shoes. We have to be willing to shut up and listen um, to their experience. Um, and and let us let us pray that there's some creativity in response to the crises uh, of the moment. Um, because without that, we're we're, we're going to see, you know, the earth open up and 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 people go down. Um, and and it seems that these people are that wrote these stories know that, and they've seen that. And I believe in some ways, Korach is a warning written by them about. How, how not to do it, right? Is to say, no, we won't come up. We won't dialogue, you know, or, or Korach throwing it back, you know, in, in Moshe's face. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.